Here's what we're going to do. I want you to open your Bibles to John chapter 6. Here's the question of the text. Do you struggle with Christianity? Do you struggle with Christianity? Today we're going to look at Jesus' first major outreach. This is his first evangelistic campaign. This is his first revival. This is his first everyone bring a friend to church Sunday. This is his first major missional thrust on the planet. Now we know that Jesus as God, adding humanity to him and entering this world in the incarnation is the major missional thrust. But this is his, his first personal direct evangelistic thrust on the planet in his ministry. And I want you to watch what happens. I want you to see what it starts with. It starts with this incredibly large crowd in verse 2. So this is a massive crowd, a, a massive number of people. At minimum, if the men are only polled, it's at least 5,000 people. Verse 10. Then three-quarters of the way through, so there's massive momentum, there's massive success, there's a massive humanity that's following him, so much so they follow him across the sea and go back again. They are committed to hearing his evangelistic campaign and his major outreach. Three-quarters of the way, though, through the outreach, the large crowd leaves. Look what happens in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. The Jews then disputed among themselves in verse 52. And then by the end of the outreach, his own disciples leave him. When many of his disciples heard it, verse 60, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And the hard saying is not that it was difficult to understand, but that it was offensive. What Jesus was saying was intolerable to them. And then by the end of the story, we're left with 12 original disciples. And Jesus says to them, do you want to go as well? And John tells us in 68 through 71 that one of the 12 is Judas. So now we're down to 11. And then Peter, speaking for the remaining 11, says those famous words, well, where else can we go, Lord? You alone have eternal life. If he just would have stopped there, everything would have been great. But as Peter does, he just kept talking. And he ruined the whole moment in what he says next. Carson catches it well. He says, Peter's way of expressing himself appears somewhat pretentious, as if he and his fellow followers are a cut above the rest, that they have become superior to those that have turned away. Carson says this in part because of what Jesus says to him in verse 70. Peter says, uh, Peter, it's, it's me that chose you. you. You didn't choose me. And then in part because when the original language wants to emphasize something, it puts it in the front of the sentence, and at the front of the sentence is we. And so Peter is saying, Jesus, we have believed. We have come to follow you and to know you. So what does all this mean? We start with this massive movement of a missional thrust, and we end with zero. Getting it. Jesus' first major mission was a failure. His first missional campaign was a catastrophic loss. So do you struggle with Christianity? We need to know this. In John 6, 
everybody does. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. This text will be over all of chapter 6, but we're going to read 1 through 21, but it will be all of chapter 6. That's Psalm 35. I got to look. Better than perfume. John 6, 1 through 21. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and fill twelve baskets with fragments from, bar from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he has done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. So Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page. Holy Spirit, you bring life, you bring light, you bring illumination, you bring enlightenment, 
You bring new heart. You bring new trusts. You bring a new creation. Would you, would you blow? Would you work? Would you move? We ask in your name, amen. Okay, so why do we struggle with Christianity? Let's take a look at this. Why do we struggle with it? Dylan Potter is in the seminary. He's, to, he's a pastor. He's done postgraduate theological work, doctoral work. He says, it's easy for me to get bored with the Christianity thing. He says, I've reached a point where I feel more like a producer than a consumer. I generally have difficulty listening to sermons because I'm filtering them through my own approval. I know where the liturgy is going on Sunday. I can strike up conversations with all sorts of people in the congregation, and I can usually make them laugh. I resent, though, handing out bulletins at church because, truth be told, I'd rather be up front disseminating the knowledge. Then he says, like a child grown weary with his toys, I long for something else, something more real, perhaps. I wonder at times, is this all there is to it? Do I have to spend the rest of my days on a Christian safari hunting for that rare and elusive contentment? End quote. Don't make the mistake of thinking that struggling with Christianity isn't a Christian thing. Everyone in this passage is churched. Everyone in this passage knows the Bible. Everyone in the passage is speaking the Bible back to Jesus. So struggling with Christianity is not just an unchurched thing, it's a church thing. So why do we struggle with Christianity? And the answer is, you have your reasons and I have my reasons. We all have our reasons. We all have reasons why we struggle with Christianity. And this is what Jesus wants to do for us in 6. Look how he's talking to Philip in verse 6. He said this to test him. Jesus wants to expose those reasons. Testing in the Bible is not a pass-fail. It's not a test to see if you get it or you don't. Because if it was a test to see if we get it or we don't, we always don't. If it was a test to see if we fail or we succeed, we always fail. A test in the Bible, a test is to actually reveal who we are to ourselves. A test is a unique thing. Is A test in the Bible is the subterranean roots and levels of our heart and our mind and attest what Jesus is doing is he's bringing those to the surface so that we can see our thoughts and we can see our thinking and we can understand our feelings. We actually can start seeing reality about ourselves and understand ourselves. In other words, attest what Jesus is doing in John 6 is that his goal is to help expose our reasons for struggling with him, our reasons for struggling with Christianity, to reveal us to us, to help us, to begin to lead us out of it. Simon Simeon Zoll writes, The heart is God's specialty. We try so hard to change our will and our desires, and we are so bad at it. God is good at it, though. He knows how to change desires deep down where it counts. He tinkers far below in the dark. He tinkers in the foundations of your heart. He works on the archaeology beyond our reach that drives our actions. And then he concludes by saying what this means is that the way to change your heart, though, is not by your effort. It's something else that changes our heart, and and John 6 is about that something else, about the one who goes down to the archaeological depths 
the foundations, the roots of our existence and our thinking and our feeling and our trusting and our hoping and our fearing. And he does this mysterious work. Jesus wants to help you this morning through this text with your reasons for struggling with Christianity. He wants to test you, reveal you to you. Why? To lead you out of Egypt. To lead us out of ourselves. So what's the first test? What's the first, the first thing he wants to take the subterranean levels of and bring it up to the surface so that we see this about ourselves? And here it is. What we're about to look at is going to be offensive for many of us. But here it is. We are possessed by power. Just before Europe was plunged into World War II, can you imagine what it was like to be, live in Europe? You see the movies, you see the, the documentaries, and you can just feel the, a palpable in the air, in the culture, in everyone's DNA. There is this palpable inhale before the plunge. And this writer, who was a historian, John, Johan Huzanga, writes, we live at this time, can you imagine he's writing, we live in a world possessed. And we know it. And what was the world possessed of at that time? The same thing the world is possessed of this time. The same thing you and I are possessed of right now. Power. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who's come into the world. It's so important because the prophet in their understanding, the prophet in this world was one mightier than Moses. It was someone who was Moses-like, but he was mightier than Moses. It was someone who was absolutely possessed with power. The power for what? The power to break the rule of Rome. And the power to establish the rule of Israel over the whole world. And so they were looking for that kind of mightier than Moses prophet. And they are saying, we have him. And Jesus knew this. So look what he does in verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, power. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. We, they, they're obsessed with power, possessed by power. One theologian describes it this way. When love of one's people becomes an absolute, it turns into racism. When love of equality, now these are things that are incredibly good. Equality, freedom. When love of freedom turns into a supreme thing, when love of equality turns into a supreme thing, it can result in hatred and violence toward anyone who has led a privileged life. It is the settled tendency of human societies to turn good political causes into counterfeit gods. We can look upon political leaders as messiahs, our political policies as saving doctrine, and turn our political activism into a kind of religion. Notice what Jesus does. He resists all efforts to make him a political savior. 
perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Many of us struggle with Christianity because we want a political savior. Now, I'm talking on, that's why I'm going to offend everybody because I'm an equal opportunity preacher. That's both sides, y'all. I'm talking, I don't care what your political party is. I don't care what your political stripe is, your political policies. Both sides do this. And Jesus won't have it. He won't have anything to do with it. And many of us are struggling with Christianity because we're trying to make him a political savior. And he won't have it. How do you know, though, if you're possessed by power? How do you know if that's true? How do we know that's true of us? So if we're going to have these subterranean things down in here come up to the surface so we can see it, if he was testing us, if he was revealing us to us in this passage to them, what would he reveal that we could say, ah, I'm possessed by power. Ah, I want a political savior. Ah, this policy will save the world. Uh, how would we know? Answer, fear. We would be a people. We would be a nation. We would be a party. We would be a church. We would be a family. We would be a marriage. We would be a community overwhelmed by fear. Of course, Keller says it pretty well. Keller, Keller, Keller. One of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of life. When we center our lives on an idol, we become dependent upon it. If it is threatened, our response is complete panic. We do not say, what a shame, how difficult, but this is the end. There is no hope. He says this is why we, regardless of the political party, quote, respond to U.S. political trends in such an extreme way. Can, can you see the extreme, the extreme fear going back and forth in our country, in our own hearts, in our own homes. When we're possessed by power, the power to control our life, we're overwhelmed with anxiety. When we're possessed by power, the power to control the relationship, we're incredibly fearful of losing it. When we're possessed by power, the power to achieve and be successful and to make it work and to not be a failure, we are overridden, dominated by terror, inner terror, the fear of failure, we call it, performance anxiety, performers call it. Jesus is saying political parties and political policies cannot and will not take the place reserved for me. 
and for my gospel work. We tend to put politics and policies in a savior place. And the place that only gospel work is about. And Jesus is saying in this text, hope in me, hope in my gospel work. We need a better exodus. Second test. So we're going to go down to the subterranean levels of our heart, and he's going to bring it to the surface so that we can see it. This is what we're like. This is what we're about. This is why we struggle with Christianity. First, we're possessed by power. Second, we're afraid of the dark. Verse 17, it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The dark in John is never neutral. The dark is never. The sun went down, and it was dark. The dark in John is, oh, the sun went down, and something darker than the dark just entered the world. For John, the dark is something terrifying. For John... The dark signifies something sinister, something diabolical. It's personified with this power that you can feel it when it comes. It can overrun you when it comes. It terrorizes you when it comes. What is it? Oh, don't miss this. What is it? What does it signify? Look at verse 17 again. Now it was dark, and Jesus has not yet come yet. This is a pairing. This pairing is intentional. Now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them yet. The pairing is not accidental. The pairing is intentional because what, G, what is highlighted, what John wants to highlight about the dark is that the dark is the absence of Jesus And it's an incredibly active absence. And it is, it is the root of all fears. It is the origin of all terror. It is the spring of all nightmares. It is the epicenter of every horror flick, ultimately. It is the epicenter of every fear that goes bump in the night. The absence of Jesus is darkness. Many struggle with Christianity because of the darkness in our lives. There are multi-forms of darkness in our lives. What's happening here? What kind of darkness? What form does darkness take in the disciples' lives on a literal level here? Well, it's... it's Scary stuff that comes at them. In other words, it's circumstantial. It can involve people. It can involve scary life situations and circumstances. But for them, this is a storm that's whooped in on them. The waves. It's, now, you've got to imagine. You've got six, seven miles across, seven, eight miles across, 14 miles long, the sea. And it's 600 feet below sea level. From the badlands comes cool air that sweeps into the moist, warm air. Arising storms in a moment's notice. But this is... When, when you're in the dark of the night in this world, you don't have lights along the coast. It's dark. There's no reference. There's no stars. There's no moon. 
You don't know if the water is above you or below you or beside you or you're under it or in it. Everything is dark. And this is a circumstance that comes at them. But there's things that the Bible talks about that there's other darkness, forms of darkness. It's not necessarily and is, in this case, something that comes at you that's scary, but there's stuff scary inside of us that comes out of us. So scary stuff can come at us and scary stuff can come out of us. And both of those together form this incredible reality called darkness. And when the darkness, when there is darkness in our lives, we think God is gone. We feel Jesus has abandoned us. And then here's the darkest part. We know we deserve it. And this is where many of you are thinking, oh, Jeff, I thought you were supposed to talk us out of that one. No, I'm sorry, I can't. You and I know when scary stuff comes at us and scary stuff comes out of us and we are enveloped in the night and enveloped in fear, we know deep down in the subterranean roots of our existence and that's why it can't be counseled away, it can't be talked away, it can't be TV'd away, it can't be drugged away, it can't be anything away. We know we deserve it. We're afraid of the dark, and we should be. Verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat. Oh, this is unbelievable. So in the first exodus, Moses led the people through the sea. In the better exodus, the better Moses, he walks on it. He walks on it. He walks. He rules. He conquers. He triumphs. He shows up on the sea. In verse 20, he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. So Jesus comes in the dead of the night. Jesus comes when it's all but lost. Jesus comes in the moment of utter, sheer, raw hopelessness and despair. Jesus shows up in the darkness. The darkness for Jesus is now a place of his presence. The darkness for Jesus is now has a sign on it. Do not fear. Place of safety. So wherever your darkness is, inside of you coming out, outside of you coming at you, Jesus is saying in this text, and Jesus is proclaiming, it is I, I am no longer absent in the darkness. I'm present. It is I. Do not be afraid. There is now a sign in your valley of deep darkness. No fear. Safety, security. It is I. Do not be afraid. 
Now, don't miss this. This is so, so important. And we don't deserve it. He comes into the darkness to people who deserve the darkness so that he can swallow up the darkness so we never feel the full force of darkness anymore. We need a better exodus. All right, this is the last test, third test. You ready? What do we, what's, what's down in the subterranean levels of our heart that Jesus wants to test us? He wants to reveal us. He wants to reveal us to ourselves. What is it? Here it is. You ready? We have no life in ourselves. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gave you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, and here it is, and gives life to the world. The world has no life. I am the bread of life, he says. Many of us struggle with Christianity because we think and our thinking and our belief systems and our thoughts and our feelings and our desires and the way we relate to each other and the way we relate to life, we think we have life in ourselves. We think, I am the bread of life. I have joy in me. I have peace in me. I can generate an identity. I can deliver myself from the darkness and doom. I can deal with things on my own. I can handle the pressures and the burden and this thing called life. I can carry my relationships. I can carry my career. I, I am the bread of life. I have life in myself. And the text just summarizes everything at the end. Just to give you the end right now, Jesus flat out by the end of this thing says, listen, your flesh counts for nothing. There is no life in you. There is no hope in you. There is no faith in you. That's why by the end of this text, there's no one left except one man, the Son of Man, the only one who has joy, the only one who has love, the only one who has peace, the only one who has faith, the only one who connects with God, the only one who loves people genuinely, the only one who holds the whole world and the cosmos on his shoulders, the only one, I am the bread of life. We have no life in ourselves. We think we do, so we do things like this. So the Jews grumbled about him. They said, it is not is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Don't miss the we know part. They know who Jesus is. They know all there is to know about Jesus. They know what he's like. I know. We know who Jesus is. This is the son of Joseph and Mary. What's all this talk about coming from a heaven? What is that? They know who he is. They know everything about him. They know what he's really like. They know that he can't be all loving and he can't be all gracious and he can't be all caring and he can't be all powerful. They know. They know what God is like. They know the answer to the riddle of God's 
How can he care for the suffering of the world? They know the answer. They know the riddle of his sovereignty and his power and being all loving and good at the same time and merciful. They know that can't work. They know. They know everything about Jesus. They know why he does things for this reason and that. They'll tell you, well, God did that for this reason. Oh, that's crushing. Yep, because I know. And I'll tell you more things about what I know, what God is doing in this world. I know he's cold and hard and distant. I know he's just playing with us. They know. We know, right? We think we know all there is to know about Jesus. But here's the catch. What we think we know actually hurts us. And it keeps us from the real Jesus. Look at verse 42. So how does he say? So first they say, we know. We know he came from Joseph. It's even worse than that, though, because they know that they know that they don't believe in the incarnation. They don't believe the Holy Spirit begotten the child. So they know that Mary had a child when she wasn't married. So this is an illegitimate child. And so Jesus has grown up his whole life in Capernaum or in Capernaum in this area, knowing that he's supposed to be this incredible, wonderful person, but he's illegitimate. We know. We know who he is. But notice it says, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They can't get the truth about him, that he's came down from heaven. Because what they know keeps them from who he really is. Now, at any point in time in this whole thing, they can turn to Jesus and say, who are you? And he can reveal it to them. But they are locked within the universe and the world of themselves. I know what's true. This is what's right. This is reality. This is who I am. And watch what happens. This is what we do. We share what we know with each other. Verse 52, the Jews disputed among themselves. You see that? So here's what happens. They're locked within themselves. So and instead of seeking the truth outside of themselves in revelation, in Jesus, a truth that comes from the outside in, they keep within themselves the cycle of trying to determine the truth, and then they turn to each other and they share what they know to be true within their enclosed universe to other people who are in an enclosed universe, and we wonder why we can't figure things out. And that's what's going on in verses 43 through 46 and also in 63 since we weren't able to read it. In fact, the text says, and they will be taught by God. God describes a world in which revelation comes from, ultimate truth and reality comes from, who is Jesus and who is God comes from, outside, down, and in. They will be taught by God, and it says, by the prophets, which means the scriptures. And then Jesus says in 63, the words that I'm speaking to you are spirit and in life. So if we want to know who Jesus is, if we want to change this, this enclosed universe in which we're trying to struggle for truth within ourselves, we look outside and we look at Jesus, and we get the truth that sets us free. Annie Dillard is a writer and poet, and her work Pilgrim tells of the absurd and tragic stories of two polar explorers, the Franklin Expedition in 1845, the Sir Robert Falcom Scott Expedition in 1912. The Franklin Expedition in 1845 consisted of 138 officers and men. Here's what they brought on their expedition. 
A 1,000 volume library, a hand organ playing 50 tunes, china place settings for the officer and men, cut glass wine goblets, sterling silverware, and no special clothing for the Arctic weather. Just Her Majesty's naval uniforms. They were dressed for a noble enterprise, and they all died, froze to death, ill-equipped for the terrain. We need a better exodus. Sir Robert Falcom Scott expedition of 1912 had a motto and had a dictum and had a, everything was revolving around, this will be an expedition of the purity of the effort. And so there were no dogs and there were no companions. There were only five men. Purity of the effort. Diller tells the reader that some of the most moving documents of polar writing ever produced are expressed by Sir Robert. His lofty sentiments, his purity, his dignity and self-control, quote, were found under his frozen carcass. We need a better exodus. Now look at verse 4. Now, the Passover was at hand. Now look what happens in verse 5 immediately after that. There's a word that, it, that I'm sad the ESV doesn't have it here, but maybe another translation does. There's a word that begins at the beginning of verse 5, and I'm going to read it to you literally so you can hear it. Now put it together. Now, the Passover was at hand. Therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, therefore, now, the Passover was at hand. Therefore, the therefore drives the whole chapter. It's the whole air of the passage. It's the centerpiece. It's the big idea. It's the dominating thought. It's the controlling, dominating idea. The Passover over this whole passage. So the, the Passover, the Passover is supposed to heal us of these subterranean things that are being risen to the surface to test us. This is why you have all the references to the mountain. This is why the reference to the mass of people following a new Moses. This is why you have the sea. This is why you have manna in the wilderness. This whole passage is about a better exodus. A better Moses leading us out of Egypt. Out of our obsession with power out of our slavery to ourselves and our own thinking and our own way of pursuing truth and our own slavery to our desires and thoughts and feelings and trusts and hopes and loves. Out of the darkness, out of the fear, Jesus leads you out of Egypt. How? Answer from the text, by his flesh. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. His death 
ends the slavery. His death parts the sea. His death enlightens the darkness. His death gives life where there is none. And John says through Jesus, and Jesus says through John, feed on that. Feed on my death. Feed on it. And when you feed on it, you're chewing on it. When you feed on it and you're trusting it, it's becoming a part of you. It, the food, the death mixes with you so that his death becomes your death. His life becomes your life. His swallowing up of death is your being swallowed up. And by his life, it is the realities of his food are now yours. Yours. 